Welcome to the Marcus Oldham College Ag Talk podcast. This series of podcasts focuses on the business management of Australian farms. G'day, my name is David Cornish. I am the director for the Centre for the Study of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham College, an independent tertiary institution that has been producing the next generation of Australian farm managers for over 50 years. The focus of the podcast is to look at the question of what makes a farmer successful. Is it just luck or do good farmers make their own luck through hard work and utilising good business decision-making processes? I hope you enjoy the discussion. In 2015, Fiona Simpson became the first female president of the Australian Peak Farmers Group, the National Farmers Federation. Fiona hails from a farming operation near Gunnedale on New South Wales Liverpool Plains, running a farming enterprise with her husband, Ed, and family, including broadacre farming, as well as breeding commercial pole Hereford cattle. 2019 was not an easy year for farmers in that part of the world. In fact, probably one of the toughest ever seen. However, Fiona is adamant that she doesn't want agriculture in Australia to be defined by these tough times. And I quote from a recent presentation, many farmers, including me, take offence to the portrayals of the broken down, handout dependent farmer profile peddled by many members of the media. And she went on to say, ag is not only an industry with a special place in our past, but also an exciting place in the future. In line with this, it's not surprising that the NFF has embarked on two ambitious settings for Australian agriculture. First, the value of farm gate output to be valued at 100 billion by 2030, currently around 70 billion. Two, that Australian agriculture reaches carbon neutrality by 2050. Added to this are the issues around the Murray-Darling Basin, COVID, China's current trading settings, just to name a few. This job is not without its challenges. With these in mind, I look forward to chatting to Fiona today about leadership, vision and making a difference. Welcome, Fiona. Thanks very much, David. Great to be with you. Fiona, we might as well start with the question why. Why, why put the effort into this? You, you could be, you've got enough to do at home, but you, you know, these things are with significant personal sacrifice. Why do you do it? I do it because I'm really passionate, first of all, about the agricultural industry in Australia, about producing food and fibre. I grew up on a farm. My family now is very involved in succession planning for yet the next generation of Simpsons to come onto this farm here. Um, and I'm really passionate about a very sustainable future, selfishly, for our family. But also, I think, because I really believe that no matter how well you do things on your farm, no matter how, how well uh, we might do things on our farm here, in order to really guarantee not just the longevity of our business and our farm, but Australian farming generally, we absolutely have to have good policy behind it. And I've seen firsthand how the processes work, how government does actually require input into its policies as it's setting its policies. And it needs good, strong pathways and good, strong advice from the farming community. It's open to that advice. If we're not there to give it, then it makes its own, it own, its own views and often they come from sometimes a very strange place. So I think we absolutely have to get engaged in the policy environment. It's that that can actually drive 
seriously the longevity, the sustainability, the viability, the, the success of our enterprises, our families and our industry. And I find it, yes, challenging sometimes, David. It's, it's sometimes a bit of a battleground, <laughs> sometimes a bit like herding cats, sometimes a bit of a battleground with my own industry and with government of all different persuasions. But at the same time, incredibly rewarding. And I get to spend you know, days talking about doing what I'm doing um, and what, what I do and what I love. I get to talk to a whole range of audiences in Australia and, and across the world about farming and about what it is that we do and why we do it and how we do it, how important it is to do it. And I get to talk to very high levels of government about policy settings that really do make a difference to our industry. And um, sometimes, it, you know, the wins, as they so call them, are few and far between, but sometimes they're really a, a, an important save if they're thinking of implementing a policy, but they don't really know how that might affect and impact people who live that industry and live that life every day. So passionate about it, love it, find it rewarding, find it challenging but it's, it's not a bad second day job. <laughs> yeah. How did you get started? I mean, obviously you didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'll just pop on down to uh, Canberra and I'll take this job. What, 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 what was your first step? No. no, I don't think anybody does. I mean, seriously, who even thinks about going into these things um, when they're younger or even when they're older? And people get really busy in their own lives as well, in their own businesses. No, what happened to me was that We'd had a, a membership of a, of a state farming organisation, New South Wales Farmers, as it turns out, because we live here in New South Wales. We'd had that for a very, very long time here at the plantation. And we'd just sort of been just members, supportive members, but members in the background, members for the, the industrial relations benefits and advice, um, members because we thought it was the right thing to do, but we never really got terribly involved in it. And then here on the Liverpool Plains, we had this uh, activity happen where some coal mines were suddenly announced. And as a community, um, we were really up in arms about that, not because any of us are particularly opposed to coal mining or mining in general, but more about the planning process and the fact that agriculture, as one of the most important industries and um, really highly productive and successful and sustainable industry here, here in the Plains, was not consulted, was not thought about, was not part of the planning process. And we were really affronted as a community that that didn't occur. And so we decided that the water was too important, the soils were way too important. We wanted to change the way, we thought the process itself was terrible. And so we started as a community coming together and having a look at how we could um, make some change. And so we decided we needed to get involved in, and active in some of the bodies that spoke to government. And we looked around, one of them was local government. So a number of us put our hands up for local government, including me. I put my hand up for Liverpool Plains Council and served four years as a, a, a councillor and also then at our representative bodies. And so um, whether it was the Irrigators Council, whether it was GRDC or whatever, uh, and, and New South Wales Farmers as, as, a, as an advocacy body. Um, and so we took ourselves off to conference, um, put up some policy. There seemed to be a vacancy for some councillor and then um, that was that was what started me. And so now, of course, many, many other issues that I think about on a daily basis than that. But certainly 
and being able to make some change in the way that process occurred about how high value agricultural land is regarded in the New South Wales planning policy, about how water and scientific study of water goes on, particularly our underground waters, our sustainable use of our water and our land. All of those are, um, whilst we haven't had a total win here yet on the Liverpool Plains, we've still got the Shenhua mine mm. that just sort of seems to be sitting there, sadly. We have, though, changed the process a lot. And a lot of the things that we had to endure I'm really pleased to say that no other community has to endure because we were able to change that process. Not perfect, but certainly certainly we, we made some change. And so I think, David, that's the thing. You can't, you can't actually just go along in life and, and think that you aspire to be in a certain position unless you have a passion about it. And I think it's, for me, it's about being passionate about something and then just following my passion and putting my hand up where I can and then being open to opportunities as they've arisen as to how I can have influence and really aware of, of um, maybe things that I could do and following my passion has led me to where I am now. So if you look at yourself through your journey and what I'm probably interested in is this concept around leadership. And it's unfortunate that it's something that we sometimes go, oh, I'm not a leader, et cetera, et cetera, and I shouldn't talk about that, which I think is disappointing because I think it's something that we all, anyone, can bring to the table and have good discussions around and something I'm trying to encourage. On your journey through these different jobs, different engagements, different things, what are the things that you've learned about the concept around leadership and, and how we can sort of improve our leadership or make leadership work in, in different situations and scenarios? Yeah, all uh, so many lessons, um, so many things. And the whole journey of leadership is a really quite a strongly emotional one sometimes I think as you find out more about yourself and you find out more about others and you find out about how to bring about the things that you would really like to do and I guess that's in some ways that's what a leadership's about isn't it it's about bringing other people along to a place where you feel perhaps they need to go or you need to go. Oh, just just on that because they say you know I think some of my strongest leadership uh, lessons is where I've failed I've got to be honest, you know, mm. I, I thought and I got passionate or I got maybe a little bit too passionate about something and I lost that ability to bring people along. And I, I'm really interested in this concept you talk about, especially in agriculture, bringing people along because as you quite pro pointed out, you know, you get two farmers in a room and you've got three different views. Yeah, and, and so I think my strongest view about leadership at the moment is not like Donald Trump, does it? Okay, it's not, it's not about. So if you think about the successful, <laughs> even though he holds one of the highest highest offices in the world, at the moment, I think he is the antithesis of leadership. So for me, and I learnt really quickly when I was at New South Wales Farmers, and I'm the same as you, David, I still have many failures where I blindly set out, not blindly, where I enthusiastically set out to and think that, that you know, we're, we're all heading down a path. I need to find, look, look behind. <laughs> There's no one there. There's nobody there. So, so that happens and that's always going to happen, I think, if you're a passionate person, you know, trying to, wanting to inspire and do things. But one thing I've really, really learned is that leadership is not about just being strong. And not, it is about being strong, but it's not just about being strong. And it's not just about being collaborative, but it is about being collaborative. But it's also about absolutely empowering other people. And it's about informing and making sure that everybody has, uh, informing is probably the wrong word, because I think it's about making sure that everybody has all the knowledge that they need to know 
about certain factors in order to go to another place. And it's about making sure that you can have as many people as possible stepping together down the leadership path rather than just you. Leadership is, even though you're often the one out in front, it's not about you. It's about how many people you've got standing behind you and, and helping to propel you. Because as you step forward, they step forward as well. And that, to me, is the only way to create real and lasting change. And sometimes that means that things just don't happen as quickly as you would like them to, and definitely not as quickly as others might like them to. But that's the only way to create real and lasting change is that every time you step, take a step forward, everybody else actually is propelling you forward. And that's how I like to think of it. Because it's not easy in your, in your game, if I could put it that way, because the, the NFF as a head body is, there's a sort of, it has a, you know, I don't know if strange the relationships with it, with the other peak bodies, et cetera, but it's, it's not like you can say this and, and New South Wales for, uh, uh, Farmers <laughs> Federation then say how high or VFF say how high is it? No. <laughs> not and actually funnily enough so the, the model and I've had this conversation with so many people the model of farming advocacy in Australia is quite old it's historical and it, it, it's I think it's um, in many ways perhaps it's it's ripe for modernization but it's very similar to the federated model we have here in Australia and so when we're actually looking at COVID at the moment it's working the well cabinet, <laughs> States and the borders oh and everything. I, you know, I actually have a lot in common with SCOMA, with the Prime yeah. Minister, in terms of what he's trying to do and what I do. Now, does that mean that I should stop trying because I haven't got the perfect model? Does that mean that, you know, I should, you know, keep pushing something that's, you know, because change is hard. It would be like trying to change the Federation of Australia in some yeah. ways, changing the, the advocacy model for farmers in Australia because NFF has 37 members, I think it is. So that's 37 constitutions, you know, and 37, you know, annual general meetings at different times of the year and 37 boards and 37 presidents. And so making change in all those different organisations at the time, to, you know, to get everybody to that same point is hard. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't attempt it and we shouldn't keep striving to make it better. It's certainly doesn't mean any of those things but I do wildly disagree with people who have a go at getting involved and then just go oh no it's too hard it's antiquated it's you know they're all you know they're they're, they're, they're not whatever I just think well wait a minute aren't we about trying to the way to create change is to bring people with you the way to create change is to to all step forward together and if people just keep you know you know I think sometimes leadership means that uh, well, people think they're leading, but in actual fact, all they're doing is is trying to create, you know, they've got this, this wrong sense of leadership, which means it is all about them and it is all about other people doing what they want. And it just doesn't happen like that. ScoMo's got it easy. He's only got five. <laughs> yeah, I have 37. 37, mate. <laughs> oh, but look, it's good fun. And with... With anything that for me that's challenging, particularly challenging, and I know we're going to go on and talk about some of those challenging policy issues in a moment, but for some of the, my most challenging policy issues where there's such diverse views, where heaven forbid politics may have had a, 
a role to play already and people have got some strange or, or some different opinions and different things happening, uh, then, you know, it's really important that as we go forward together to make some decisions in the policy space, we all start on the same page. Mm. And so, um, for example, the coalition has been unable to reach agreement on an energy policy. Yep. Whereas we have, an NFF, been able to reach agreement on an energy policy. Now, is it the perfect policy? Probably not. But it is a policy that certainly we can meet, means we can participate fully in the national debate, means we can all agree on what we can agree on, and it means that we've been able to, because we started at, on the same page where we made no assumptions about what people thought, knew, whatever, we brought in experts, we brought in facts and figures, we had a discussion and a debate starting right from the beginning, um, then we were able to get to that point where we could all agree on what we could agree on. And so I think, you know, though that's really important. And I get frustrated sometimes when very strong people with lots of great things to give in agriculture, some of our so-called thought leaders even maybe, really come in and have a go at getting involved in our advocacy organisations and then leave because they haven't been able to do what they've wanted to do. Yeah. And I say to them, look, don't, don't get too frustrated. You know, that, that's also about leadership. Leadership is about bringing people along. That doesn't mean you failed as a leader. It just means that, you know, you need to think about how, you know, I like the challenge of thinking how, about how you might do it differently. So let's, let, let's get on to that. So you're talking about bringing people along, along to where? And this is, I think, a really important part, surely, of leadership too, the, the concept of, 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 of where we're heading or where we want to go. You have to have a very clear vision about where you want to go. And hopefully that vision has included, it's been, you've, you've got to that vision by including other people in your vision. And so for NFF, it's about our 2030 strategy. Mm. And so I've been in the role nearly four years now. And when we came, when I came into the role, it was time for NFF to do a new strategy anyway as an organisation. And a new CEO, new, new president, it was a good time to have a refresh about where we'd been and where we wanted to go. And we thought as an industry, we wanted to do the same thing. So often in the game that I'm in, we, we're, you know, we're, we're, we have to be reactive because, um, you know, the activists say something or government says something and we have to butt up against it. But a better way to go, we think, is to be really proactive and to not, not worry about this noise that's going on too much uh, off to the side of other people saying things, but be really, really strong about what we think about is the vision for our industry. And so we embarked on this big uh, regional tour, 18 locations back in 2018 in all the lots of regional areas, lots of stakeholders, so farmers and uh, business people and government people. And we put together our NFF 2030 vision, which is to create $100 billion worth of value, as you said, up from 70 today. And in that vision, and it, we were really determined about this, it's not just a, a glossy, pretty coffee table document, although it is quite a nice looking document um, with lots of pictures and things. It's actually got metrics, targets, foundations, and it, it, it cascades down. So it starts up with some high level principles, cascades down, and it, it's very measurable. So it's, in fact, it's so measurable that each year we actually come in and measure ourselves against the different sets of criteria and metrics to see how we're traveling. And so that vision, the 2031, has actually been supported not just by industry, but by government, by the opposition, by stakeholders. Everybody's grabbed it because 
it really shows this is where, you know, this is where these people want to go. This is where industry wants to be. They think that they are not only just going to grow, but they're going to grow, you know, massively. They think that there's huge potential in trade. They think there's huge potential in digital connectivity and what that's going to unlock. They want to attract the best and brightest people into their industry. They want to value add and think about, you know, um, can we do use digital technology in the regions to grow our regions and our regional communities? And all of those things are, you know, the vision that we bring to the conversation. And I think as a leader, it's not just empty words. I have something to hold myself accountable to and that others can hold me accountable to as well. And I think it's been important as a leader to have that vision that's so clearly documented as we've sought to create some, um, some positivity and some real drive around agriculture in Australia. I think, it's, I think that's important in that what surprised me, and again, giving my background in corporate world, I've been used to, uh, let's call them, uh, what they call them, bridgehead comments by CEOs coming in, we're going to do this. And I, I saw the 100 bid and I thought, Oh, that's great. But one of the things that surprised me, nicely surprised me, was the granularity by which NFF went about putting the, putting this document together. And, and can I say, I think it's really great because every policy that comes that we do now, every program that we do, every campaign that we run is actually tied to one of the aims or the outcomes or the measurables in that document. So, for example, a sort of holistic program we have around the diversity and ag leadership program, which is about increasing diverse, the gender diversity amongst CEOs and leaders in our industry. Yep. There's a goal in there around the percentage of female um, representation we want in our industry by 2030. The work that we're doing at the moment around biodiversity markets and can we actually create some capital markets for what we do on farms in terms of environmental stewardship, that's actually tied to the metric in there about let's get 5% of environmental services stewards sorry environmental payments environmental what gosh what's it called environmental payments by by 2030 let's get diversity of farm income and that's in there because as here's, well, my, here's, so. here's my, my interesting part on this i think fiona from my perspective is that yeah nff is not a corporation farmers are not a corporate you can't suddenly go we are going to implement this strategy so everyone's going to do this or or you can do it that's probably been unfair but you're an influencer or a policy influencer proposer where you say here is a vision that we've had feedback from our stakeholders we, we've, and we're all on board, but how do you as an organisation or as a leader then say, well, okay, how do we then implement it given that it's not within your control to implement it? Yeah, so we have to make sure that because we're the sort of organisation that we are, where our members of the organisations represent farmers, that they also buy into the vision and that they also have then the tools to be able to inform their members and engage their members and ultimately enthuse their members, I guess, about some of these things. And we've been um, incredibly excited that um, at the moment, there's there's such appetite on farms for the positive, you know, for, for change. There's such appetite on farms about some of the things that we're talking about. Um, the young people that are on farms now are really driving some amazing innovation and, um, you know, different ways of doing things. And so, which I guess is not un unusual. Like, I, mean, I, think, I think young people do that all the time as they're coming through and the generations are coming through. So we have to make sure that what we're proposing... And and it comes through our policy committees. So even though we, you know, we, we have our complicated structure, our policy committees are actually made up of the farmer representatives. So everything gets sort of 
tried, if you like, on from you know it, it's run the the eagle eye gets run over it from the farm gate, and the the farmers are very much engaged in the policy discussions, and sometimes the policy discussions are actually you know very long and involved to make sure that they are farmer friendly and that we're not just proposing pie in the sky stuff. And whilst they won't suit every farmer because every farmer is different and every farmer has a different view and every farmer has a different business, you know, we, we want to make sure that what we're proposing is actually workable, will make a difference, is that doable on farm, uh, as things that people, you know, will really benefit their business and their family and their farm. And so it's important that, that, if, that you know, that, that policy has that base because otherwise, um, you know, we could just be making it up, which wouldn't go anywhere at all. Because again, I think it's even beyond your, 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 your group in that, let's look at one of my passions and my students, Marcus, be sick of me talking about productivity and how important it is to Australian agriculture. But hopefully they leave markets knowing that. And, and, and one of your pillars you talk about, and certainly in, in, in your discussion document was around productivity and the importance to Australian agriculture. Now, the, the, the issue is that we've seen over the last four or five years in some environments that productivity falling off. And, and there is a relationship that ABARES has shown between research and productivity. Now, the problem is NFF doesn't own the research, VFF doesn't own the research. It's state governments, federal governments, CRCs, and that whole investment and saying, how do we, we need money. I mean, the reality is we need research to be happening in agriculture if we're going to stay competitive. So how do you go about as, as an organisation, well, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but please do, but uh, how do you as an organisation encourage or, or, or make certain that that's not left off the bigger picture? Because I could imagine the treasurer at the moment um, looking for any way he can to save a bit of money, I would have thought. Yeah. And so, and of course, the research and development organisation for which farmers pay levies mm. are um, one of the main sorts of vehicles that do, as well as research institutions like the universities, um, do do specific research. So it's really critical that as an organisation and as the national ag agricultural farmer representative organisation, that we engage in any and all, which we do, any and all ways with these other organisations, including reviews, where at the moment the R&D organisations, for example, are, are very much in the spotlight. How do they operate? How do their boards operate? What are their governance models? How do they use their R&D levies? How do they use the matching levies that, that the government provides as well for the research? And what transparency, what level of oversight, what level of connection do farmers have with all of those things and what's needing to be done on ground with what is actually done on ground? How do these uh, organisations operate? And so we are a, a representative organisation for one of those organisations, but we also have great relationships and we've formed great relationships on farmers' behalf with, with them and with other research institutions as well to make sure that what, because you're right, productivity is very much linked to, to research and we want to make sure that what research is done is actually relevant and, 
and, and is going to make a real difference on farm. So I think it's about, for me, it's about relationships. There's an, an enormous number of stakeholders in the agricultural supply chain. We engage with the commercial providers. We engage with commercial agribusiness as well, some of whom are doing some amazing pieces of, of research at the moment on, on carbon and carbon farming and, and land use management and different things. Um, we engage with the R&D organisations and, of course, we engage regularly with government and the minister to make sure that, at the federal level, to make sure that he is aware of what our thoughts are about um, different things. And we often get put on advisory boards. I sit on a number of government advisory boards now, um, whether we're talking about trade, uh, whether we're talking about, at the moment, the EPBC Act, the, the, the Federal Act that oversees the protection of our environment is under review. So I'm sitting on a review committee for that, for the Federal Minister for Environment, an advisory board for the, trade, the Federal Trade Minister, an agricultural advisory board. So I sit on a number of government advisory boards where we make sure that agriculture can have its, um, its 10 cents worth. Okay, so leading on to that, and I, 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 was, I was mildly surprised about the vision, but you know, pleasantly surprised. The one that knocked me over with a feather was when you came out and said carbon neutrality by 2050. Where'd that come from? <laughs> so, so that came from having to keep modernising and progressing our view that, we, that we, we talk about in our 2030 statement. So when we came out a few years ago with our 2030 plan, we talked about trending towards carbon neutrality by 2030. And uh, it, it's quite amazing how in some ways quite rapidly these thoughts have moved and this has moved in Australia and also globally, I guess. But certainly agriculture has found, uh, there's a couple of reasons why. So, so, so just as a matter of course, we do modernise our policy thinking on all sorts of different things from time to time. It's really important that we review our policies. They're not just set and forget. And as the community sentiment change, as our members' sentiments change, um, as there are external factors influencing policies and policy makers, then it's really important that NFF has relevant policy so that we can actually be in the room and talk about these things when it's happening. So the, the CN2050 clearly has been something that has been very much in the news very much part of the discussion and more importantly very much part of a discussion in our own industry and I think it's been at two levels one has been where we have found ourselves a whipping boy a bit in the past so when this is the farmers yeah. farmers generally yeah. and agriculture generally you don't have to look very far in a uh, newspaper to read about how, how you know what enormous emissions we have about how terrible animal agriculture is, for example, for the environment, about how, you know, how agriculture is the source of all our problems. And of course, in Kyoto, when the Kyoto discussions were happening, agriculture was not at the table, not in the room. We did not, you know, want to, we, we just didn't want to go there. And as a result, they invented this Australia cause, um, which meant that Australia was able to claim this, this radical lessening of emissions just because they, they got the states to introduce vegetation management provisions, which meant that no compensation was payable to farmers, yet it basically changed the land management of those lands from farming to, to forestry, for want of a better word. And it, and it more or less 
it, you know, and that a, a lot of farmers found that really offensive to start with because some of the data and details around how we farm in Australia is, is, is that makes all those predications quite wrong anyway. And also because now, you know, there's a lot of farmers that are very, very involved and incredibly interested in the sustainability of their farms from a climate change perspective. They're incredibly interested and involved in the effects of climate change. There's a general awareness now that farmers are at the forefront of dealing with climate change. But more importantly, I reckon, David, there's a, a realisation that, that farmers are, um, yes, we are a part of the problem in that we, we do emit. So we have animals that emit methane, not carbon dioxide, but methane. Um, we use machinery that is an emitter. But also because the way we farm in Australia generally, which is you know, overwhelmingly outside grazing systems that we're, and cropping systems, that we're actually part of the solution as well. And that you know, our plants, whether they're crops, whether they're perennial grasses or whether they're trees for that matter, can actually grab that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it in our soils, which is going to help us because we're going to produce better, yep. better quality produce, but it's also going to help Australia in terms of its emissions targets and the world. So um, there was a, a, we had the red meat industry come out with a, a carbon neutral target by 2030. We had the grains industry now doing its own sustainability plan with really some very, very, very far reaching targets. Same with pork, same with a number of our commodities now having these, these very far reaching plans. And so we thought we needed to have that discussion as well. And we had that discussion in our membership and it's got the CN target is an aspiration. It's fair to say, not just for agriculture, but for the whole of the economy. So we're happy to do our part and um, we absolutely think that we can, but also we expect the rest of the economy to do their part as well. We don't want this goal to be achieved and this aspiration. So it's an aspirational goal in some ways because we've said, yes, we want carbon neutral. And I think this carbon neutrality is something that sometimes people forget that it's about not cutting all your emissions. It's certainly cutting down your emissions where you can, but it's also looking at the other side of yep. the equation as well and the sequestration. Um, so we want to change the discussion about that. We want an aspiration. We've got an aspirational goal now about being uh, carbon neutral by 2050. And we don't want to do it by just shutting things down. Um, we want to do it by working with predominantly our industry and our sector because we think we're leaders and we want to be acknowledged as such. So we two for here, and I mean that, Fiona, not mainly obviously from the EFF, but, but more importantly for you, what, 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 what's, what's the next leadership challenge that you see for yourself or within the NFF or, and, and, and what's important for you, you over the next couple of years? Well, I've got, I'm just about to stand for my final term as the president of NFF, which will mean that I've got a, another three-year window in front of me. And sometime during that three years, and it, it may be the full three years, I'm not 100%, you know, I don't, I don't, life changes and does different things for you. But at the moment, I want to make sure that when I leave NFF, that it's got a clear succession plan, that we are um, on a good pathway to, to the sustainability of, of, of where we're going, of, of the future for our organisation and for our industry. But more importantly, you know, I've got a succession plan here on the farm to work out. I've got the succession plan there at NFF and I've got some other roles as well. I'm really passionate about 
what I call regionalisation. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting involved in some of those opportunities as they come along. I chair now the Future Food System CRC, which is around the, you know, it's it's looking at regionalisation. It's looking at how we grow food in the future, particularly containerisation and indoor cropping. And it's looking at at um, value adding into nutraceuticals and other things. So. Those are the sorts of, um, I'm really, I'm at a stage in my life now where I, I, I can be very selfish and focus on the things I'm passionate about. And so as I go into this last term of my presidency, then I think we've, I feel some sort of satisfaction that we're, we've got to where we have, but Get Australia Growing, I have the document sitting here, I've lost it now. But anyway, Get Australia Growing is about where we want Australia, about the next stage for Australian agriculture and how exciting will that be? So I want to be part of that. So I suppose in summing up, one of the, the things that I would love you to sort of talk about is young, farm, you know, young farmers, people leaving markets, for instance, going home. Why should, they, why should they get involved in this? Why should they be involved in groups like the NFF and the NSW and et cetera, et cetera? Because they have to be. Um, because no matter how well you do things on your farm, unless you've got policy that supports that, at an industry level and a government level, then you really, you're not gonna maximize your opportunities. You're not gonna maximize your opportunities as a family, as a business, as a farm, or as an industry. We badly need, you know, well-informed, educated, credible people who are driving the policy and who are part of the policy making that goes to inform government about the way forward for agricultural policy in Australia. So, for example, I'll use carbon as a, an example. So, you know, we know on farm that carbon helps. We need carbon in our soils. We need organic matter in our soils because that actually helps grow healthy plants. It helps grow healthy animals. Um, it helps our, our bottom line. And it might be even a, a differential if we wanted to mark at our farm as a, um, you know, a carbon neutral business or industry. So we've got all those opportunities in front of us. But what if we were to actually um, have policy that actually creates markets for carbon and actually starts looking at, so there's ways of, you know, looking at it. What if we were to have policy that actually created markets for carbon instead and we could be rewarded for that? And so what if we were to be rewarded? You know, many people on farms, you know, they're planting trees for shelter belts. Many people on farms are realising the, 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 the need for regeneration of pastures and, and maybe even multi-species cropping. Many people on farms are looking at the value of waterways and streams. What if we were to actually be able to participate in financial markets for those sorts of things as well and have policies around that coming through from the government that rewarded farmers, not from government monies, but from actually, you know, people who wanted to invest in those things and communities who wanted to invest in those things. So we can do, you know, that's, that's why we need people involved in, in advocacy, because you have to have sensible, credible policy. It has to be informed by sensible, well-educated, Marcus student-type people. And really, you can't just think somebody else is going to do it because at the end of the day, your business is only half the business it could be if it doesn't have the right policies behind it. Yeah, and I reckon it's a great place to, to finish today. And I really appreciate your time and your insight and uh, really enjoying what's happening with the NFF at the moment. So thank you for all your work. Always a pleasure. Love being involved with Marcus um, in any way that I can. So thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Marcus Ag Talk podcast. 
please, any feedback on the series would be greatly appreciated. You can either leave a message on this site or email me at cornish at marcusoldham.vic.edu.au. Stay tuned to next week's podcast as we continue to explore farm management from an Australian perspective. <laughs>